Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. This is episode 47 of the podcast. Uh, let's see, today is Wednesday, uh, Tuesday, 6th of September, around 10 o'clock at night. Anyway, I f- figure I'll try to get a podcast in, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, plug on Twitter, our Twitter handle is at defense underscore podcast. If you can find the time, check us out on Twitter. And a couple of things to talk about today. Uh, I guess there's a Minuteman 3 launch tomorrow, which is Wednesday, that, uh, I wasn't tracking it, but I saw something today about it, so I figured I'd talk about it. And uh, good story in defense news from Jen Judson, an, an author that who's awesome, great reporter, talking about Futures Command, the four years of Futures Command. I think it's been four years and kind of where it's been and where it's going, so we'll cover that. But the first thing I want to talk about, there was a press brief uh, today Pentagon Press Secretary, Air Force Brigadier General Pat Ryder holds an on-camera press briefing September 6, 2022, and uh, usually these things aren't very good. I've looked about three or four of them now on the show, and normally they're just, I guess it's harder than it looks because they never seem to have a lot of information, and I don't blame the press brief. I guess, because you don't know what the reporters are going to ask. But generally, there's a lot of I don't know and talk to these people and we'll follow up and all that. But that's kind of where I found out there was going to be a Minuteman. So let me let me just jump right into it. Uh, this is from General Ryder, who's been on the job a couple of months now or a few weeks anyway. Uh, where's that? Okay, so he wants to highlight a few operations administration. Here we go. There will be an operational test launch of an Air Force Global Strike Command unarmed Minuteman III intercont- intercontinental ballistic missile early tomorrow morning, September 7th, from Vandenberg Space Force in California. The launch is a routine test, which was scheduled far in advance and inconsistent with previous tests. This ICBM launch will validate and verify effectiveness and readiness of the system. In accordance with standard procedures, the United States has transmitted a pre-launch notification pursuant to the Hague Code of Conduct and notified the Russian government in advance pursuant to treaty obligations. Uh, The purpose of the launch is to demonstrate readiness of U.S. nuclear forces and provide confidence in the security effectiveness of the nation's nuclear deterrent. As you may recall, the last test launch was August 4th, which had been delayed uh, so if you're wondering about the timing, the two launches moved closer together due to delays from the August sliding to the right, and tomorrow's launch was scheduled for in advance. I think that's something to do with, uh, I think there was one launch that was supposed to be done in, in the winter around February, but the invasion of Ukraine happened and they didn't want to make it make things worse. And I think during um, Nancy Pelosi's visit to uh, Taiwan, they, they were going to schedule one and they didn't want to fire one then either so anyway that's that's he covers that and we'll get into that in just a second but there was some other things kind of like i said these press briefs 
I don't know. There's not a lot of details. I'm not. I'm glad they do it. Um, some of the stuff, I'm not really interested in. This is just me. But there was a couple of good nuggets uh, on here, and I will get to it. Let me pull it up. It's kind of a long transcript, so let me pull it up real quick. And what I was interested in, it was uh, about three things, four things, if you count the the Minuteman 3 launch. That was one thing I was interested in. The second was the sail drone incident from Iran, which was a few days ago. And you have to forgive me because some of the questions – the uh, it really doesn't identify who the question is asking the question. So as best I can, I'll try to figure it out. So General Ryder, when he gets to this question about the sail drone incident in Iran, he says Fadi, and then we'll go to the phone. So I think this is someone named Fadi. So the question is, thank you, General. Just wanted to follow up on the question on the sail drone incident, specifically the second one. Wall Street Journal reported over the weekend that the camera on both drones were missing. Now, I didn't know the cameras on both. If you remember real quick, uh, we have these, the Navy has these cell drone uh, USVs, unmanned surface vehicle vessels, I think they're called. Basically, they're surveillance, un, uh, unattended surveillance uh, sensors that just float along the water. They're solar powered, wind powered. Anyway, they're kind of cool. But anyway, the Iranians were trying to rip one off. They were messing with them. Basically, we talked about it a few days ago. So anyway, this reporter's following up, and he says, can you f- confirm the report whether Iran took the cameras or do you know have any idea where they are? So apparently when Iran was, you know, messing with these sail drones, they ripped off the cameras, stole the cameras from them. And General Ryder says, yes, I can confirm the cameras were missing. They are unclassified on sensitive off-the-shelf technology in terms of what specifically happened to them. I don't have that information, so I can, can't confirm that Iran took them. So anyway, send Iran a statement of charges for, uh, you know, sail drone cameras. Because these are commercial, that was my input. That's not part of the briefing. Uh, because these are commercial off-the-shelf systems, you know, certainly I prefer that NAVSENT in terms of, you know, the efforts to repair these. But no particular concerns in regards to the fact, again, this is not sensitive equipment. Um, and then there was another question is there an effort to communicate with the Iranians to ask him if they actually have the cameras and General Ryder says I don't have that information again I would say we call on the Iranians to exercise good seamanship and observe the international rules and norms when it comes to operating this area thank you good luck on that okay so I think there was a follow up question on the sail drones which let me pull it Okay, further down in the, pre- in the press brief, there was a question from someone named Paul Hanley from AFP. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, it says, hi, hello, can you hear me? And General Ryder says, yes, I can hear you. And the question is, okay, sorry, look, look going back to the sail drones, can you say on what basis they were recovered? What demands did you, did the U.S. Navy make to the Iranians, and was there a threat leveled? Was there kinetic force considered? And stepping back more broadly, can you say how many of these have you deployed in the Gulf and are there, and are they only there, or is the Navy using them in such a large number elsewhere in the world? Ryder says, General Ryder says, sure to answer your first question. So as I understand it, the, the Iranian Navy held these sail drones on their deck of their ship overnight and returned them the next morning. So that's two things I didn't know. I didn't know they held them. They held them overnight, and I didn't know they told, stole the cameras. So anyway, there's some good nuggets out of that. 
And in terms of, and this is General Ryder continuing to answer the question, in terms of how long they've been operating in the vicinity or in this area, these drones operated as part of the 5th Fleet, Task Force 59. They've been operating in the region since the beginning of the year, so January of 2022. And they are are a way that we are able to provide information to NAVSENT quickly as far as safely transiting the area, providing information in terms of potential issues or threats in the area. But the bottom line is there's no situation in which forces were, as you put it, hostile. They took them and then two U.S. Navy guided missile destroyers that were operating in the vicinity responded, moved in the area. But then shortly after, like I said, overnight, the Iranians released them. Thank you. So there you go. Not much on that. A couple of facts that we didn't know. They held them overnight and they took the cameras. Now here's a question from Tony... Bertuka from Inside Defense, changing the subject. Thanks. I, now, here's his question. Thanks. I appreciate it. Last week, DOT&E, Director of Test and Evaluation, Nicholas Guertin, which we talked about, I think, last episode or the one before, was tapped for a job to be the ASD with the Navy for research development and acquisition. And those are two very different jobs, right? One's an unbiased evaluator of weapons programs, and the other one is an advocate for weapons programs. Um, is Mr. Gwerton going to stay on as DOT&E, Director of Test and Evaluation for DOD, while he pursues confirmation in the Navy job? And then how does this department adjust to the potential conflict of interest that this might cause? Now, this guy, Tony Bertuka, this is the same question that I brought up when I talked about this a few days ago, I mean, one minute, this guy is just, we talked about the relationship, uh, the kind of tension, the healthy tension between the requirements community, the test community, I mean, the requirements community and the uh, acquisition community. There's a relationship there, sometimes tenuous, but it's a healthy tenuous, if that's a correct phrase. And then you kind of rely on the test community to sort it out because they're the neutral party. And he's saying if this guy becomes the basically the acquisition authority for the Navy, which he's been nominated for, you know, now all of a sudden he's the acquisition. Is he going to use his former position as director of test and evaluation to kind of, you know, pressure that organization to get his stuff through? And uh, I have the same question. And General Ryder answers – Yes, thanks very much for the question. Tony, let me get back. Let me take that one and get back to you. I just don't have the insight to provide on it, so let me get back to you. Um, I had the same question, and I'm not really concerned anymore because we talked about it, and I looked at uh, Nicholas Gwerton's, man, I hope I'm not messing his name up. We looked at his bio. I looked at his bio. Uh, right now, he's the current director of operations test and evaluation. We talked about it. Before that, he had experience in that because he worked for the Navy. Uh, he was Before that, he was the deputy assistant secretary of the Navy for research, development, test, and evaluation. So he kind of did that for the service. So he's well qualified in that. And before that, he was a daggum... Uh, he was a PM. He worked for, where is it at? He was the executive director of amphibious auxiliary and sea lift office and PEO, Pro- program executive officer, ships. 
So he was in the acquisition field. So he was in the acquisition field, then he was in the test field. So he was in the acquisition field for the Navy, PEO ships. Then he was in the test field for the Navy, and then he got this job, and now he's going back to the Navy to lead the acquisition. So apparently he's squared away. He's gone back and forth. Apparently he hasn't had any problems doing that. So good question by, I think his name's Tony. I had the same question, but I'm not concerned. I think he'll be just fine. Um, anyway. I just wanted to follow up with that. And now we'll move on to, oh, while we're talking about it, we might as well talk about the, uh, the launch of the ICBM, uh, Minuteman 3. All right, so I pulled this up from Defense News. Stephen Losey, L-O-S-E-Y. We've done stories on him before. Uh, this article is from 6 September, 1.32 p.m. U.S. Air Force to, to test launch nuclear missile Wednesday morning. Uh, let's see, we just found out from General Ryder also that U.S. Air Force plans to test launch an unarmed, obviously, hopefully, intercontinental ballistic missile early Wednesday morning, the Pentagon announced. Uh, Pentagon spokesman General Pat Ryder said Tuesday briefing that Air Force Strike Command will launch the Minuteman 3 missile from Vandenberg Space Force Base in California. Okay, this is the second test in less than a month since the August 16th launch of another unarmed Minuteman 3 from Vandenberg. Uh, That launch was delayed 12 days from the original date in an effort to avoid worsening tension with China after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Uh, The Chinese government objected to her visit and fired missiles into the water off the coast of Taiwan as part of a military exercise. That was kind of big news. Uh, Ryder did not address... General Ryder did not address China in Tuesday's brief, but told reporters that U.S. had notified Russia. We know that. Uh, the article goes on. The purpose of the test is to demonstrate the readiness of U.S. nuclear forces. We've talked about that just a second ago. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin also delayed a previous Minuteman three tests in March, shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Russian President Vladimir Putin's decision put his nuclear forces on high alert. You guys remember that back in March. Big news then, too. At that time, Pentagon said the test was delayed to avoid any misunderstanding with Russia, and the department urged Putin to take steps to lower tension. Very prudent. So while I got you here, I might as well talk about what the Minuteman is. And I didn't know until now. So I went right to the U.S. Air Force website. Got to give credit to the Air Force. They have a lot, good website that covers all their major weapons. So this one here is the LGM-30G Minuteman Three. You can go to their website, airforce.mil, about fact sheets, and then just look it up. So LGM-30G Minuteman Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, or ICBM, is an element of the nation's strategic deterrent forces under the control of Air Force Global Strike Command. Can you think of a better name for a command than Global Strike Command? What a great name. Okay, so they explained to us the L and LGBM. LGM is the Department of Defense designation for silo launched. L means silo launched. G means surface attack. M means guided missile. 30 means Minuteman series of the missile. And G, after the 30, is the current Minuteman 3. Minuteman is a strategic weapon system using ballistic missile of intercontinental range. Missiles are dispersed in hardened silos to protect against attack and connected to an underground launch control center through a series of hardened cables. Launch crews consisting of two officers perform round-the-clock alert in the launch center. Uh, 
A variety of communication systems provide the president and the secretary of defense with highly reliable, virtually instantaneous direct contact with each launch crew. Should command capability be lost between the launch control center and remote missile launch facilities, specifically, specially, what the heck, specially configured EA-6 airborne launch control center aircraft automatically assume command and control of the isolated missile or missiles. And fully qualified airborne missile combat crews aboard airborne launch control center aircraft will execute the president's orders. So real quick background. Uh, Minuteman weapon systems conceived in the 1950s and the Minuteman 1 was deployed in the 196, early 1960s. Let's see. Uh, today's Minuteman weapon system is a product of almost 60 years of continued enhancement. The current ICBM force consists of 400 Minuteman 3 missiles located at the 90th Missile Wing at F.E. Warren Air Force Base, Wyoming. The 341st Missile Wing at Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana. And the 91st Missile Wing at Minot Air Force Base, North Dakota, way out west. Some general characteristics. It's an intercontinental ballistic missile made by Boeing. I don't want to go into the power plant because I don't understand it. And the thrust. The weight is 79,432 pounds. Diameter is 5.5 feet. Range is 6,000 miles. Speed is approximately 15,000 miles per hour, Mach 23 at burnout. Ceiling is 700 miles. State deployed June 1970. Production cessation December 1978. Wow, these suckers are old. And there's 400 in the inventory. None in the reserves, none in the guard. And that's it. Everything you wanted to know about a Minuteman 3, but we're afraid to ask. Credit to the Air Force for providing information like that. All right, so here's the main effort of the show, I guess, 18 minutes in. And that's Jen, Jen Judson from Defense News Story about Futures Command faces identity crisis as Army shifts mission. So uh, let's see, how do we begin with this? Uh, let's see. Futures Command was started in about 2018. So real quick, what Futures Command is, it's a four-star command basically responsible for requirements generation in a, in a way um we've talked about it before um for new systems there are three concentric circles i guess they're not concentric venn diagram type circles one is requirements concepts and requirements the other is acquisition and the other is uh money ppbe is called and then the test community is kind of We've talked about this before, but uh, it's kind of an old saying. Well, I don't want to doctrine or does doc, does technology uh, advance doctrine or does, or does doctrine advance technology? And it's neither. What uh, what moves really technology, I guess, would be concepts, concepts and requirements so there's a con there's a concept a gap is determined and then to fill the gap a requirement is written we've talked about this before and uh and requirement could be anything it could be a, a material material solution material with an e it could be a doctrinal solution it could be an organizational solution it could be anything and um and that's what uh, pretty much for for 
for materiel requirements. That's what Air Force uh, Army Futures Command gets paid to do. Uh, they come up with concepts and the future formations and future organizations and future requirements for materiel solutions. Then they hand it over to the acquisition community, uh, the material developer, who uh, the Honorable Doug Bush is in charge of. And he's the one who bends the metal and works with industry and, and, and builds what the requirement says to build. And at some point, there's some give and take between the requirement and, and the material developer and and the test community is, again, is like the neutral party that figures out. And, of course, PPB comes in, the budget, the money people come in and say you can buy it or you can't buy it or you can buy this many or you can't buy this many. Or It's all kind of a not concentric circle but Venn diagram where everybody interacts with everybody, and it's not an easy process. But anyway, Army's Futures, Army Futures Command was built to do the requirements and concept of future organizations and future materiel stuff. That's what they were built for. And in this article, she does a very good job of laying out the history of it, why it was created, um, who created it, which at the time was the Chief of Staff of the Army, General, General Milley, who's now uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And it talks about the cross-functional teams, of course, you know, the headquarters of uh, Air Force um, Army Futures Command is a four-star. It was a four-star. He retired. Now they got a three-star running it in the interim. They put the command at Austin, Texas, because it's known for innovation, technology-focused work, uh, workforce, and they created these things called cross-functional teams. Well, first of all, there was a, a priority, so... The chief of staff of the Army, General Milley at the time, created helped create Air, uh, Army Futures Command, and then he gave uh, priority for modernization, and he, and he grouped it into six. And, of course, the six modernization priorities are long-range precision fires, next-generation combat vehicle, future vertical lift, air missile defense network, and soldier lethality. And then what he did is, not him, but I'm sure it was part of a team, they created these things called cross-functional teams. And there are eight of them. Even though there's only six priorities, there's eight cross-functional teams because the other two are mutually supporting. There's long-range precision fires. There's you know air missile defense, future vertical lift, soldier lethality, next-generation combat vehicle, network, and then the two other ones are assured position, navigation, and timing. And then the other is uh, synthetic training environment. So those are the – I call them the six plus two. I don't know what the Army calls them. I just call them six plus two. So that was established. And then the command – Army Futures Command was kind of built to manage all that stuff I just said. That's the purpose of it. And they made it a four-star command because you need a heavy hitter to kind of manage that, um, to manage all that modernization stuff. Before TRADOC was doing it, Training and Doctrine Command. And TRADOC, and I agree with this, there was some say that TRADOC was too busy trying to man, equip, and train the force, meaning the Army, and they didn't have a lot of time for I won't say had a lot of time. It just didn't have a lot of manpower to to manage modernization, too. It had to be its own animal, and I agree with that. I think creating Army Futures Command was a good idea. Now, TRADOC is still involved, obviously. Uh, they, they handle the training requirements for all this new stuff, and they, they train all this new stuff in the institutions. So TRADOC is still involved, but they're not leading the concept and requirements generation as they were. So 
AFC was created, and then they ch- they got this guy named Mike Murray. Uh, they promoted him to four star. Before that, he was the Army G eight, which is a three star. And the Army G eight again heavily involved in that process. I just mentioned we mentioned PPBE. The Army G eight is you know they they handle the money for the Army, and he was the Army G eight, so he was intimately involved in all of this this modernization through requirements and material development and all that stuff. So right person to pick so that he was in charge of it he stood it up somehow they decided that they were going to put it in austin so instead of wearing their uniform they wore civilian clothes because they thought that you know they want to work with industry and with academia and they figured well you know if we wear our uniforms we're going to scare people off and all that not sure i agree with that um uh, you know, I mean, you could put a three-piece suit on an elephant, and at the end of the day, you know, he's still an elephant. You know what I mean? You're not fooling anybody. So you don't need to put soldiers in civilian clothes to deal with industry. In fact, they probably have more, probably get more further with them if you wear your uniform. That's just what I think. Um, let's see. So anyway, the article goes on. They moved it. They put it. Uh, then they decided, then the Army tried to have to uh, pay for all this stuff. They wanted to pay for the six plus two and do that. They had to cut some stuff that they didn't feel the army didn't feel would fit into the army of the future. So they cut more than 30 billion over five years, which Jen kind of does a great job of going into to pay for these priority areas. Uh, And then she gives some examples, uh, guided missile launch rocket system, JLTV. Some of the stuff got canceled or reduced. And let's see. Then she mentions uh, what she describes as tension between the acquisition office, which would be Doug Bush's outfit, and AFC uh, when it came to one of the priorities from Next Generation Combat Vehicle, which was a program called the Optionally Manned Fighting Vehicle. It was a competition to replace the Bradley. Anyway, it didn't go well. General Dynamics submitted a bid. They were the only people that submitted a bid for it because maybe the requirements were too tough. I don't know. Maybe technology wasn't ready. But... Basically, they delayed the program over two years, and according to the article, hoping to diffuse attention, uh, McCarthy, who was Secretary of the Army, a guy named Ryan McCarthy, in 2020 issued a directive meant to clarify the authorities, AFC, and system in the Service Acquisition Office. So, at some point in the creation of AFC, growing pains, I call them, uh, did AFC being very powerful four-star general uh, who's in charge of concepts and, and organiza- you know, future organizations and uh, requirements. Did he, did the command start, I won't say muscling in, encroaching on the material developer's end of the, of the deal? Because the material developer, the acquisition, Doug Bush, he's responsible for getting the stuff. So when you write a requirement, you don't write a requirement necessarily for, you know, a Leatherman uh, or a Gerber tool. You write it. You write the requirement of what it's supposed to do, and if Gerber tool wins, and they win. If Leatherman wins, they win. You don't. You you don't write it to a specific capability. Now you talk with industry to inform requirements, but you don't. And I don't know. I guess there was some not heat, but there was some tension between the two enough that uh, Secretary of the Army McCarthy had to issue a directive to clarify the authorities of each, uh, you know, acquisition and AFC. I think it was called 
The order put Army Futures Command in the driver's seat, establishing that leading the modernization enterprise. It designated the command as the Chief Futures Modernization Investment Officer acting on behalf of the Army, but it noted it should work in coordination with the acquisition office. So what that did, what McCarthy did, was put AFC in primacy of the future of the Army. Um, And maybe some people had some problems with that. But there's really no real examples of how those two entities, major entities, were encroaching on each other. Anyway, fast forward to May 21. Uh, Christine Wormuth is now the SEC Army. She makes two visits to Futures Command. She told Defense News, who wrote this article, she quickly identified some amb- ambiguity. Ambiguity. I mean, this is my native language. I can't even say that word. In the direction given to the commands and services acquisition office about their roles and responsibilities. So again, with the roles and responsibilities of AFC and the acquisition community. Um, at the same time, Wormuth moved to centralized investment authority in Army headquarters. I don't know what that means. So then in May 22, she issued a memo voiding previous modernization directives, shifting much of AFC's control over funding. Ah, there you go, funding. Back to the acquisition branch. This included funding for laboratory research as well as development and prototyping. Uh, Warmer said the memo was meant to make minor adjustments to the relationship between acquisition office and the command, meaning AFC. Now, there's somebody here named Calvert. I don't. I've lost, I'm lost in the article here. This person says Calvert, the new director, basically guts the entire intention of Army Futures Command. Who is this Calvert? Oh, yeah, he's a, I didn't talk about him earlier. He's a uh, lawmaker from California. Ken Calvert, ranking member of House Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. That's not just some lawmaker. That's a heavy hitter right there. Ranking member of House Defense Appropriations Committee. Um. He said, I had my doubts in the, mid- in the beginning about AFC. He questioned whether it cost too much and whether it was in the right location, even that he probably wanted it in California, even the entire concept. I'm always in favor of doing things differently than what has been done in the old way, done in the Army, old Army, because it obviously wasn't working. So he was on board. And then now this new memo, he says, guts, uh, guts the entire intention of AFC. Why the heck did we, he didn't say heck, but why the heck did we do it in the first place if the bureaucrats want to take over the operation put the military in the back seat? That's just an entire bureaucratic, bureaucratic power play from my perspective, and we're going to be back where we were. And then they asked this other guy, Thomas Spear, former three-star, who now works at a Heritage Foundation think tank, like you do, uh, said warmest directors have left the perception, whether correct or not, that the Army's head for is seeking to rein in AFC. I guess you could look at it that way. This impacts their ability to get things done. Army officials have pushed back on claims that they've weakened the the command. The Army Futures Command never had acquisition authority, which is true. Doug Bush, the Army's acquisition chief, stressed in testimony on Capitol Hill this spring that has always been resided as required by law on the civilian secretariat in my office. So Title X says that's his job, not AFC's. AFC does requirements. I do acquisition. The AFC commander's got his job. I've got mine. No person is in charge of everything. We just talked about that. 
So here's an interesting part. The AFC has not announced a new AFC chief since Murray left in late 2021. According to multiple sources who weren't authorized to discuss the public the matter publicly, General Walter Pyatt was the front runner for the job. However, he was reportedly reluctant to send the National Guard to stop the January 6th insurrection, spurring concerns that his nomination would not survive Senate confirmation process. So like I said, they've got General James, Lieutenant General James Richardson doing the job. He's a three-star. He doesn't show his face much, apparently. And the command has returned to wearing military uniforms more regularly at the request of the new command sergeant major. God, I love that. And the command has returned to wearing military uniforms more regularly at the request of the new command sergeant major. I'm down. I have to say I approve of that. Like I said, an elephant. You put an elephant in a three-piece suit, still an elephant. Uh, anyway, I'm not, so anyway, they talked about, uh, the new commander is going to be a three star and a four star. And I said on this podcast, probably a few months ago that if they make it a three star, then you know that they've put AFC in the back seat. but if they make it a four star, then it's no big deal. And sec army warmest says they're going to name a new commander and it's going to be a four star. I think that's what she said. In a recent interview, Warmoth and Bush vowed that Army Futures Command will remain in Austin and have a four-star chief. I don't think it's for Bush to say that, though. He should be starting to stay out of it if I was him, but he can do what he wants. And along with McConville and Richardson, they have also confirmed their commitment to see the, the service's modernization priorities to the finish line. Uh, let's see. This is a fantastic article, and I know I'm not doing it justice by uh, my commentary on it, but I'm doing my best here. Okay, so here we go. This is kind of good. So the conflicting orders, one from Sec uh, Murphy. I think his name is Murphy. Ryan, I think there's a Mac in there somewhere. Stand by. I'm sorry, Ryan McCarthy and Sec Army Warmoth. There's conflicting, you know, guidance, blah, blah, blah. And the lawmakers got confused. So Congress wants more answers. Who's overseeing the Army's modernization work? A provision in the House version of the latest defense authorization bill submitted as an amendment by Representative Mickey Sherrill, a Democrat from New Jersey, requires that the service provide a plan that comprehensively defines the roles and responsibilities of officials and organizations of the Army with respect to forced modernization efforts of the Army. Kind of like a playbook, I guess. Uh, that'll be very helpful to people like me that follow this stuff. Um, I think I saw her testimony on that back when we talked about this months ago. So here, if the Army fails to submit one, the head of Army Futures Command will revert to roles and responsibility laid out during the Trump administration. In other words, Warmos' latest directive would have no force or effect. In other words, they go back to the McCarthy directive, which, if you remember... We'll get into that in a second because we'll talk about it. Uh, let's see. That's it. I don't want to. I don't want to go any more into it. But basically, Jen Justin describes the history of it. How uh, a big player in this was uh, uh, General Milley. How he laid out the six priorities, and then how a little tension has come between uh, the acquisition side and the requirement side. In other words. Uh, the assaultee, assistant to the Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, also known as ASA, ALT, assaultee, or, and, and the AFC. 
Now, real quick, just to catch everybody up, we talked to everybody about the uh, modernization priorities. Let's just talk about the memo real fast. 35 minutes, wow. So this memo, the memo they're talking about, the latest memo, I didn't look the one up from Senator uh, McCarthy, but it's referred to in here. Uh, it's from 3 May 2022. The purpose of this is, it's online, you can find it if you want. It's called Army Directive 2022-07, Army Modernization Roles and Responsibilities. Uh, it gives a little background, which I don't want to go into. So here we go. So Army Policy 2018-15 and, and a, a Army Directive 2020-15, I think that was a McCarthy one, are hereby rescinded, where directive conflicts with any other Army policy or guidance this directive is controlling. So this is the one that sent, uh, SEC Army Warmoth put out. So here it is. This is where she lays it out. Assistant Secretary of the Army, Acquisition Logistics and Technology, also known as a saltee, is responsible under Title 10 U.S. State Code, United States Code, for overall su supervision of Army acquisition, logistics, sustainment, and technology matters, and the management of the Army acquisition system. This responsi responsibility includes the oversight of Army research and development, including science, technology efforts, and associated resources and decisions. The assaultee, as the Army Executive Army Acquisition Executive, AAE, carries out all authorities, functions, and duties of the SEC Army with respect to the acquisition workforce. Uh, this direction assignment, blah, blah, blah. So here we go, and this is the roles of the Chief of Staff. The Chief of Staff assists the SEC Army in developing requirements for equipping the Army, balancing resources and priorities, ensuring the associated trade-offs among cost, schedule, technical feasibility, and performance are made on major defense acquisition programs. We've talked about that before. Uh, the, the PM, the acquisition side, is worried about cost, schedule, and performance, of course. But the requirements people is we're worried about performance, schedule, and cost in that order. And that's where the natural tension occurs between the two, just so you know. All right, so the CGAFC. AFC is now an enduring command, and CGAFC is responsible for force design and force development. Force design, force development organizations and the capabilities developer that would be requirements and oper operational arch architect for future army afc assesses and integrates the future operational environment emerging threats and technology to provide warfighters with the concepts and future force designs needed to dominate a future battlefield nothing about acquisition in there uh cgafc is operation of army's research laboratories and centers and then she gets into the heavy-duty stuff of remove from the last directive. CGAFC will leave the Army modernization enterprise, not anymore. Remove this posture of the Army for future by integrating the Army modernization enterprise and aligning resources to priorities as approved by DCSG 357. Uh, remove leads modernization effort for the Army. So leading the modernization effort for the Army is not AFC any well as of May. And then it goes into Southern Roles and Responsibilities, CG of U.S. Army Material Command. I know that this might be a little heavy for some people. Uh, I'll, I'll figure out a way to end it very quickly. Um, then it goes to some Roles and Responsibility of uh, AMC, Army Material Command, Material with an E. Uh, CG TRADOC, which is training, we know that. Forces Command, which provides combat-ready forces for total Army. And Deputy Chief of Staff, G357. Anyway, so... I think I'll stop there. Bottom line up front, 
this memo does not prove, uh, codifies that AFC does not lead the Army modernization enterprise. Acquisition side is done by uh, uh, Assaultee, but AFC does lead the, the Army in concepts, and, uh, force design, and requirements. There's no doubt about that. All right. So I was kind of surprised that they were going to uh, replace uh, General Murray with a with another four star, but they are. And while I got you, I might as well. I'm already over time anyway. I decided to look at how many four stars there are in the U.S. military. You know there are 40 four stars. And I went to, don't hate me, I went to wikipedia for this it's actually surprisingly good there are 44 stars in the uniform services and i double checked there's over 2 million uh servicemen and women 2.2 million servicemen and women in all components and there are 44 stars that includes admirals that includes all services and they break it down with 16 in the army three in the marine corps nine in the navy 10 in the air force and two in the space force not very many four stars there's only 16 in the army and real quick, I'm going to tell you where they're at. Uh, the chairman, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is a four-star. That's General Milley. He's, a, he's an Army four-star. The vice chairman is a Navy, Navy guy named Christopher Grady. He's an admiral. So all the COCOMs, we know the COCOMs are four-stars. And the COCOMs are AFRICOM is a Marine general, four-star. Uh, CINCOM, uh, Army general, Corella. Cyber Command is a Army Nakasone, Nakasone. Uh, UCOM is Cavoli, Army. Indo-Pacific, Navy, like you figure, Aquino, Aquilino, I'm sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, Admiral. Uh, Northcom is uh, Air Force, Van Herc. Southcom is uh, Army General Richardson. Spacecom is Army General, surprisingly. Dickinson. Uh, SOCOM is Army General. Fenton. Uh, Strategic Command is uh, Navy a guy named Richard, and Transcom is Air Force Van Ovost. So now we get to Joint National Guard Bureau is a Army General Four-Star Hoganson. And, of course, uh, USFK, Commander UNC in Korea, is a four-star La Camera. Always been an Army guy over there. Now here we get to the Army. Now that's all the joint stuff, and that's all the COCOM, the one I just named. Now we'll get to the services. So for the Army, obviously the Army Chief is a four-star McConville. Uh, George, that's right, George is now the Vice Chief. Uh, so Forcecom is always a four-star Pappas. Uh, AFC is vacant. We just talked about that. Uh, U.S. Army Material Command, Daily. Uh, Tradoc is Funk. And two of the Army Service Component Commands for the uh, major uh, for the combatant commands are four-star also. That's uh, Army Europe and Africa was General Williams, and Pacific is a four-star General Flynn. Now, the Marine Corps don't have too many. They've got the commandant is General Berger. We know that. Assistant commandant is General Smith. The Navy's got how many? One, two, three, four. They got six. So Gilday, Chief of Naval Operations, the Vice Chief of Naval Operations, Franchetti. Director of Naval Propulsion, Nuclear Naval Propulsion is Caldwell. Uh, Fleet Forces Caudel, Naval Forces Africa and Europe is Munch, and U.S. Pacific Fleet is Papara. So the Navy and the, and the Army, their service component command for Europe 
and the Pacific is both four stars. That's interesting. I think the Navy, the Air Force is the same way. The Air Force is the same way. That shows you where the priorities are, Pacific and Europe. I'm not going to go down in the Air Force. I'm probably boring the heck out of everybody. Space Force is a four-star, a guy named Raymond, and then the Vice is a guy named Thompson. Coast Guard's got two, four-stars, Fagan and Poulin. And there are three pending. We're getting a new trade-out commander, uh, General Brito, a uh, new strategic command, General Cotton, and a new chief of space operations is Saltzman. And that's it. I probably went too far on that. That's all right. 44 minutes is way too long. I'm going to quit doing these long episodes. I need to stick to around 30 minutes. But once you get started, it's hard to stop. And I, I hopefully I, did, I didn't do that uh, article by Jen Judson justice. But uh, maybe I gave you too much information on AFC. But bottom line is I think AFC is doing a good job. I think they're going to find their way. I think uh, it'll all work itself out. I think you need three. I think I think the requirements community needs its own four-star command for modernization. And I think it was the right move to take it out of TRADOC. Anyway, 45 minutes and four seconds. Uh, real quick, another plug for Twitter, at Defense underscore podcast, if you can find the time. Uh, check us out on Twitter. And I think that's it, episode 47 of the books. Next episode, I've been trying to get to this story it's a fixed-wing episode for the Army on uh, surveillance. I wanted to get to it this episode, but I didn't have the time. I'm going to get to it next episode, I hope. And I will be under 30 minutes next episode, I hope. So thanks for all the support. If you just stumbled into the podcast, I say welcome. And if you've been with us before, I say welcome back. And please continue to check us out. And that's pretty much it. Episode 47 in the books. Thank you very much, and good night. <laughs>